0: From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. This is 1050 Bascom.
1: Well, Congress, of course, has exempted itself from Freedom (laughs) of of Information Act requests, which makes it very difficult for Congress scholars to really understand what's happening behind the scenes.
0: How do I gauge whether my representative has represented me in the correct fashion?
1: It's a really difficult job to monitor and one that's gotten much harder for constituents. When do voters actually care about political scandals, whether it's, it's corruption or sex scandals or whatever it is? When do those things sort of outweigh their typical political leanings?
0: Citizens sometimes feel that their elected officials are just not listening to them or even making decisions that contradict their own campaign slogans. On this episode, I hope to unpack potential trade-offs legislators might have between constituency service and policy work. Keep your eyes up, take a deep breath, and let's take a walk up basket. I'd like to welcome Ellie Powell to the podcast. She's an American politics and political methodology faculty member here in the political science department, as well as the Booth Fowler associate professor. Hi Ellie, thanks for being with us today.
1: Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So let's jump into our first question. I always like to get some background on our guests and more specifically their own personal pathway to political science. You did your undergraduate work at Princeton University. Were you a poli-sci major coming in? I was. Oh, okay. Can you give us a little background on on why you chose that path?
1: So it's, it's actually a strange uh, story. So my parents are both political science professors. Okay. So I grew up surrounded by political science and going to dragged along to conferences (laughs) as a kid because that was the only choice when both parents are political science professors. And I went into college thinking I was going to be anything but a political science professor, (laughs) that I wanted to do something different. I was going to rebel and I thought I was going to go off and do nonprofit work or something in the public sector sort of thing. And, And then got to college and started taking a political science class my freshman year and started working as a research assistant for political science faculty members. And slowly slipped down the path of political Did science. Did you find yourself
0: grudgingly falling into this or was it after the first couple of courses, you're like, okay, I see where my parents are standing. Maybe this is kind of for me.
1: I ended up actually loving those classes, okay. and then it sort of slowly came to the realization that yeah. you know, one has to actually admit what one likes.
0: Yeah, that's great. So actually, last month, Barry told us of a class that he had. Did you have any courses that stood out?
1: Yeah, there was a course um, the spring of my senior year that that I loved. It was a small graduate seminar that I somehow talked my way into as an undergraduate. It was with two very senior faculty members, mm-hmm. and it was about political theory and public policy and so sort of trying to bring these two very disparate fields together and there was just a constant back and forth and so you'd hmm. read these incredibly rich readings and then they'd have this argument between themselves oh, and we were cool. just all watching with wide <laughs> eyes and <laughs> occasionally piping up but it was just a really fun sort of eye-opening class. That yeah I
0: really enjoyed. very interesting. So after Princeton you went on to Harvard. Um, what got you thinking about a PhD then in, in poli
1: Well, it was sort of a realization that, you know, as I got to my senior year, I'd been sort of thinking, well, I was going to do, I thought, maybe nonprofit work. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking maybe law school, but I wasn't really sure what I would do with that. And then I sort of had this realization that I actually loved doing the research work. And I had been working as a research assistant for a number of faculty members. And so I thought sort of, you know, what the heck, I'll try taking the GREs and, you know, see if (laughs) I can get into grad school and sort of, you know, check this thing out. And I ended up getting in and I ended up loving it.
0: Wow. Yeah. Princeton to Harvard. I know your first faculty job was at Yale. So you went Princeton, Harvard, Yale. What led you to UW-Madison?
1: So again, it's sort of a a strange story. My um, childhood best friend ended up in Madison for sort of idiosyncratic reasons. And I had come out and visited her and sort of loved Madison. And, you know, I gave a talk when I was out here visiting here and I just had always heard wonderful things about the department and about Madison and how it was just sort of this sort of sweet spot of sort of a magical place where we had this vibrant intellectual community, this top ranked faculty yeah. that people were were pleasant and thoughtful and, and like really intellectually engaged. But it was a sort of a really harmonious, you know, exciting and vibrant intellectual environment. And, you know, Madison's beautiful. The lakes are wonderful. They sure are. And so I, you know, end up coming and basically hope, hope to never leave.
0: Yeah, very cool. As someone that went to UW-Madison, which is a huge land-grant university within the Big Ten, I want to get your take on how this differs from some Ivy League schools. Can you give us some similarities and those differences, maybe in your experiences within teaching and students?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I've really been amazed by is the students at Madison are really outstanding. And you know my best students here positively compare to my best students at Yale. There really are phenomenal students here. And one of the things I really like about the students here is that people really try and are hmm. engaged. Now, obviously, you know, people have occasional late nights and sleep through class. Sure. That's just like sure. any college student <laughs> <Yeah>. would. But
0: <laughs> Not me. Yeah. What? I mean, just, like,
1: <laughs> occasionally that's been known, known to happen. But, you know, th- what's amazing about the students here is they really want to learn and they want to try. And it feels like you're really adding a lot of value And that's one of the things that really makes it it special and rewarding to engage in teaching is it feels like you're taking students that maybe don't know everything, there is maybe as much coming in, but you feel like by the end of their four years, you've really made a difference in their understanding of the world. Yeah,
0: that's great. I'm from a smaller Wisconsin high school, and I can definitely tell that when I came to UW-Madison, I was surrounded by people that were actively engaged, not only within Madison, but state and, and nationally wide. And that was very intriguing for me. Let's move on to some research questions. Now that we have some background on you, I'd like to start by laying out some context. Uh, You focus on a variety of issues related to Congress. Your book, Where Money Matters in Congress, looks at the influence of money on Congress and some of the biases it has for policymaking processes. In addition to studying the influence of money in American politics, your research helps us understand political parties and also the complexities of congressional representation. Let's start by looking at more recent research relationship between constituency service and policy making within Congress. Congress isn't too popular these days, to say the least. I think I saw a Gallup poll this summer that had their rating at, what, 17 percent? What are some main sources of that disapproval?
1: Well, it comes from a a lot of different sources. People don't trust Congress, they don't think Congress has their best interests at heart, they think Congress fights too much with each other, they think they're too angry. And they don't think that Congress gets anything done. They don't think that it's advocating on behalf of their constituents.
0: Sure. What what sorts of factors do you think go into people's assessments of Congress?
1: Well, I think it goes into you know their personal experience with Congress, what they hear about Congress, political media. I think it goes into sort of how, how they perceive what Congress is or isn't doing on, on their behalf.
0: Yeah. So then likewise, does Congress acknowledge that their rating is at Seventeen percent, and what steps are they taking, if any, to rectify that?
1: <laughs> so actually, seventeen percent is a few points higher than they've oh, been God. over the last okay. couple of years. So sadly, this is not actually their, their low water mark, which I think was around thirteen or fourteen oh, percent. Yeah, not not great. Congress knows it's a problem, and actually, one of the funny things is, it's a lot of members of Congress today actually ran for Congress by mm-hmm. running against Washington. It's actually a classic campaign strategy that goes back to at least the 1960s, where okay. you know you're running for office as this outsider as this challenger and you know everyone hates Congress. So what do you do? You say, Congress is terrible. Washington's out to get people. You sort of run against Congress mm. and the institution. And then you get there and then you become part of the institution, but you still bash the institution. You still bash, you know, what, what's going on. So a lot of people, you know, essentially bash their jobs as mm. a way to sort of build trust with their constituents. Do
0: you sometimes see these people running for Congress with this campaign slogan of I'm against Washington or against how terrible Congress is doing? But then once they get there, flip-flop and now become part of the problem?
1: Well, they rarely start start at sort of running and campaigning on being a part of Washington and being sort yeah. of part of the congressional establishment. That's very rarely a good campaign mm-hmm. strategy. Uh, so sometimes they'll stop running actively against it. They'll just try to run on, on other issues.
0: Do you see the percentage of candidates doing that? going up or down since we were at 13% and now we're at
1: 17%. No, I haven't seen that as much. I think what the, r- the real reason that the numbers have ticked up a little bit is the economy has gotten okay. better. And so typically we think of congressional approval, presidential approval, yeah. gu- gubernatorial approval. Those things are all pretty highly correlated with the economy. And so gotcha. when the economy goes up, you know, a couple of quarters later, okay. we'll see approval oh, numbers okay. go up. And yeah. so this sort of like economic linkage tends hmm. tends to you know work in, in the favor of, of Congress right. when there's a good economy.
0: Does it trouble you as a political science professor and citizen that the so-called people's branch is so unpopular?
1: I mean, I do think it, it's it's sort of concerning in terms of sort of democratic norms and, and representation, how mm-hmm. people trust the process, how people think about the outcomes or the laws that are passed, whether yeah. they think they're fair, whether they think they're just. You know, I think that the lack of trust in the process is really concerning in terms of democratic norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I think, also concerning in terms of you know, people being willing to invest their own time in the process of being able to sort of research and learn about sure. candidates and make their own voting decisions.
0: Yeah. And, and what does that say to you about the strength of democratic institutions in American democracy today?
1: Well, it suggests that there are some some warning signs out yeah. there about, about how strong okay. they are. And one of the things that political scientists have certainly been spending a lot of time rethinking over the last year or two are sort of things that we thought of sort of as longstanding democratic norms you know, how strong those actually are. What are actually are the rules and sort of where are the boundaries?
0: Let's go a little bit deeper and talk about some research you actually just presented in Boston during the recent American Political Science Association conference there. You have two co-authors on that project, Justin Grimmer uh, from Stanford and our own Devin Judge Lord, a PhD student here at UW. You revisit what you describe as the classic question of constituency service. What is that question?
1: We think of, or at least I should say Congress scholars, think they know a lot about constituency service. So constituency service is when essentially members help out their constituents with a problem that they might be having. So it could be something like you're having trouble, you're just retired, Mm -hmm. and you're having trouble getting your social security benefits. Something's caught up in red tape, you don't know what's going on, you don't know how to fix it, but you're having trouble getting the benefits. One of the things you can do is you can reach out to your member of Congress Mm -hmm. and they can actually call over to the Social Security Administration Mm -hmm. and find out what's going on. So they can at least tell you what's going on and they can investigate your case. But they could also, if it's gotten sort of stuck in the process or lost along the way or something's happened, they can sort of try to intervene and move things along to sort of help out their constituents.
0: Right. So it's almost like your elected official is someone that you elected to work on your behalf. <laughs> it is almost sort of like
1: that, exactly, right? This is the sort of idea of sort of this like personal representation. They're sort of yeah. acting as your your representative yeah, with your the sort liaison. of larger federal right. government. And this right. is something that a lot of people don't even know is a tool at their disposal. But it can be a sort of really powerful thing that if you're having trouble with these benefits and you're in a really difficult situation, this can be a sort of important Path forward in terms of help. So, Congress scholars have thought they understood constituency service. They've been writing about it for decades, you know, research going back to the 1960s talking about constituency mm-hmm. service. But it turns out we've never actually had any data on constituency service because essentially members of Congress aren't required to disclose or collect any data on this. And so, mm. it's something that Congress scholars have sort of theorized about and they've done interviews about, but we don't actually know what's happening behind the scenes in terms of constituency service at all.
0: Wow. Okay. And some. Of this is some of the groundbreaking data that you've then collected.
1: Yes. Yeah, so for the first time, my co-authors and I are, are trying to collect data on actually being able to measure this constituency service for the first time.
0: And do you have a process for how you're going about doing that?
1: Yes. So basically, one of the things that's challenging about studying Congress generally is Congress exempted itself from the normal obligations of the federal government. So normally, if you wanted to learn about, you know, a branch of government or sort of one of the bureaucratic agencies, you could file, say, a Freedom of Information Act request and get some documents from them about what they're doing. Well, Congress, of course, has exempted itself from Freedom (laughs) of of Information Act requests, which makes it very difficult for Congress scholars to really understand what's happening behind the scenes. Wow. And so one of the things that we're doing in this case is we realized that one way we could try to measure constituency services, we can't you know, see exactly what's happening in the congressional offices, but we could reach out to the bureaucratic agencies okay. and ask them to ah. tell us every time they get a request from a member of Congress. And so what we did is we filed Freedom of Information Act requests, they're mm-hmm. called FOIA requests, okay. with every single federal agency and sub-agency and independent agency to try to find out what members of Congress are doing and how they're actually advocating on behalf of their constituents.
0: And are you getting that information as free-flowing as you would like to? (laughs) Or are you reaching some sort of pushback?
1: Well, there's a lot of pushback. I mean, it, it's one of those things where they're they're obligated to respond to our requests, and they respond in sort of a professional manner. But sometimes the responses are, we'll get back to you in a couple of years. Okay. Oh, wow. So this is actually a project that we've been... We started collecting this data about two and a half years ago, and we still have many outstanding requests. So the okay. sort of results I'm going to talk about are the very preliminary results, and we are still yeah. have a lot of data coming in. And I should say the data comes in in a wide variety of forms. I mean, everything from... You know, some agencies will send us these beautiful scanned spreadsheets with all the sort of information neatly organized. And other agencies will send us scans of handwritten documents that are totally indistinguishable, and you're trying to read someone's handwriting. Other people send us CD-ROMs of data, a technology (laughs) with with which I was not aware that we were all still using. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we had a hilarious time sort of running around across campus trying to find a machine that would still handle CD-ROM so we could download this data. So there's a a wide variety of data form. Trying to wrangle this is its own special challenge. Do
0: you notice a relationship between the size of the agency and the wild ways that you're getting the data back in?
1: (laughs) Not necessarily the the wild ways. The agencies where they get a lot of congressional requests do Mm -hmm. take longer to process the requests because one of the things that they have to do before they can give us the data is they have to redact constituent names for privacy reasons, which is, of course, incredibly important. So if you're an agency that handles a lot of constituency service requests and you've got a lot of names in these files, that's a slow process. Definitely.
0: All right, so I mentioned trade-offs legislators might have to make between constituency service and that policy work. What are these and how do they affect this slogan of drain the swamp?
1: Yeah, so one of the the sort of thoughts both in the sort of public discourse and in the political science research is, you know, your member of you elect this member of Congress, they're sort of your, your person, your representative, they're fresh-faced, they're eager mm-hmm. to go to Washington and advocate on your behalf. And then they get to Washington and they sort of go Washington, right? They sort mm-hmm. of become part of the swamp. They start sort of focusing on corporate interests. They stop focusing on their constituents and they sort of get involved with the committee process, right? So they start getting more and more power within Congress and they sort of leave behind their constituents back home. That's sort of one narrative. But it's a narrative where there's not a lot of data to actually support it or refer it either way. So one of the things that we're excited about with this project is we can actually explore some of these questions. So one of the things, you have this member of Congress, what are they doing in terms of constituency service? And then let's say they get promoted to a committee chair. Do they increase their constituency service or do they stop doing constituency gotcha. service and start focusing on other things beyond their constituents? And one of the things that we were really surprised by in our findings is we found that essentially if you had a member who was doing a lot of good constituency service, when they got that extra power, when they became the committee chair, when they theoretically could stop worrying about the constituents back home, they actually used that extra power to do even more advocacy on behalf of the oh, constituents. Oh, okay. That's good to hear. Which is really surprisingly encouraging yeah, about Congress. I would that, not
0: think of that. You know, so that was my other question is, how do I gauge whether my representative has represented me in the correct fashion.
1: It's a really difficult job to monitor and one that's gotten much harder for constituents as essentially the demise of local media means that you're getting a lot less coverage of your local congressperson or your your local senator. And so your ability or the information at, at your disposal to try to make these evaluations is much more challenging.
0: Definitely. So following up to this use of power for good, Congress, as I noted at the beginning, is the people's branch and your work suggests that constituency service is indeed a powerful mechanism for citizens to potentially influence government agency. What are your thoughts on reforming public perceptions of Congress?
1: <laughs> That's a big que- yeah. question. I think there's a there's a lot that could be done. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people don't like the public infighting, the bashing, mm-hmm. the nastiness, the conflict. There are lots of things that members of Congress could do differently if they sort of just behaved a little more professionally and a little more uh, courteously and sort of Mm -hmm. could come to some consensus, could find some middle ground. But that seems like a pretty challenging thing to do in this sort of level, given the level of polarization in today's politics.
0: Is there any first step that you clearly see that can be taken more immediately than some of the other ideas?
1: Well, one of the things I think that's uh, somewhat encouraging that hasn't actually gotten a lot of coverage over the last few weeks because there's just been so much news and so such mm-hmm. a fast pace of news is that Congress actually has been passing a lot of legislation – this year on a lot of sort of areas where there sort of might be pressing problems facing the country or there are areas in which there sort of was a lot of popular agreement so they passed a big a big bill to sort of help combat the opioid epidemic which is something that members of both parties have mm-hmm. been sort of concerned about for a long time and it's been a sort of big pressing problem in people's lives you know i also study primarily money and politics and one of the pieces of legislation that congress finally got to deal with or i should say the senate finally dealt with is For the last forever many years, the Senate has been filing their campaign finance disclosures on paper instead of with electronic filing. And this is totally insane and wasteful, where essentially you know they all of course keep these records on beautiful spreadsheets instead of just handing over these beautiful spreadsheets they would essentially waste time and delay the process by printing out physical copies of this sending these physical copies yeah. over to the federal election commission who then had to outsource the <sighs> the transcription where people had to hand enter these numbers all of which was incredibly inaccurate let alone incredibly wasteful of money and then like several weeks later after the election had happened then you could then get the posting. So all this did was delay disclosure and make transparency even harder. And it was just costly and wasteful. Is this
0: something that was grandfathered in or a procedure that just hasn't been modernized? Or is this a deliberate act to try to hide some of this or make it difficult?
1: Well, this is how, of course, both chambers used Mm -hmm. to do it, because essentially, you know, before you had digital data and so forth quite as easily, this was a sort of sensible way. But even the House moved to electronic filing several years ago, but the Senate has deliberately avoided that for essentially reasons of obfuscation. The only advantage is that a lot of money for congressional campaigns comes in at the last minute. If there's a three-week delay between when you post the numbers, so that can be enough where the election happens. And then after the election, no one cares sure. where the money came from. Is there
0: any movement to coax the Senate to go to a an online form?
1: So the Senate just did this okay. in the last few weeks. No one's been paying attention yeah. because there's been Supreme Court confirmation hearings and all sorts of other things happening. But as a money and politics scholar, this is very exciting that finally the Senate has actually come to agreement and they're actually going to start moving to digital filings.
0: Are they trying to tout this? I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard about this.
1: I haven't seen anyone talking about it. I think it's just one of those issues where there's so much else happening Mm -hmm. that these sorts of issues, even things that are like pressing national problems like the opioid epidemic, there's just higher order things, scandals, other things breaking the news. And this stuff, which in a normal media environment would get a lot of coverage, Mm -hmm. today doesn't get a lot of coverage. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're definitely in this special election, this special presidency that has been like no other. And so these these typical news headlines are, are just not being made public. Or they are, but just are crowded out by other things.
1: I mean, I think this is like a larger problem with the coverage of Congress generally is there's a lot of focus on sort of horse race coverage, mm-hmm. who's up or who's down in the polls, who's up or who's down in the election, who's going to win, what are the consequences of this, and much less coverage of actually the substance of the legislation and what's the, what are the consequences of those legislative choices. And so this is sort of a, which makes it then very hard for voters to make choice informed choices if the news that they're getting about Congress is about who's up or who's down rather than actually the policy positions or the sort of bills that are being passed.
0: Gotcha. So I was wondering if you could talk about this comment on political partisanship and how that relates to congressional disapproval.
1: So one of the things that you know people, one of the reasons why people say that they dislike Congress so much is, you know, they dislike the sort of partisan fighting, the sort of mm-hmm. discord and disagreement between Democrats and Republicans. They dislike the controversy. They dislike the sort of angriness and bitterness of that fight. And this is certainly something that we've seen over the last few weeks with the Kavanaugh camp confirmation hearings. We've mm-hmm. had a lot of just hard feelings on both sides, lots of sort of. Accusations of acting in bad faith on both sides, and a lot of just personal acrimony between members of the Senate. And this is something that's you know is is challenging uh, in terms of getting Congress to move forward. It's challenging for you know people to sort of trust the institution. One thing I would say is, period. We're in now this like heightened feeling of partisanship, of polarization, is actually. You know, similar to earlier periods that we've seen in earlier eras of American history, if we go back to the late eighteen hundreds we had eras of you know members of Congress coming to blows and like literally fist fights on the floor of the house and so you know we've had a lot of a lot of acrimony this week over the last few weeks, but we haven't actually seen that and so you know we've had eras of bad feeling or eras of you know dislike of polarization of heightened conflict before one of the things I think that's often gets missed in sort of popular discourse about this is you know, the era of the sort of 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. was an era of relatively low levels of polarization, although a lot of societal unrest uh, in other ways. But that sort of low point of polarization and of partisanship is actually the more unusual period of American history. And these sort of higher levels of polarization are tend to be sort of more of the norm in American history.
0: Do you see a pendulum here? Do you see that we might fall back into those time periods in the 50s and 60s?
1: Well, I think political scientists have the last two <laughs> years have become very skittish about p- predicting the future. Yeah, and so I certainly no w- w- wouldn't want to, to fall into that trap. But, you know, it, it's tough to say. I mean, one of the things that could potentially be an area of sort of breakdown of partisanship or breakdown of, of polarization is you, know, you actually have a lot of ideological disagreement within some of the parties. So mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, is quite unusual is, you know, within the Republican Party, you actually have a lot of ideological disagreement. You know, we have. You know, Speaker Ryan stepping <laughs> down as leader at the end of you know, this Congress. That's somewhat unusual to sort of walk away from this prestigious leadership position. Right. But one of the reasons why he's doing that is there's a lot of ideological disagreement within his caucus. And it's not totally clear that he could have been able to stay on as leader that much longer. There's just a lot of infighting within the Republican Party that makes it a you know a caucus that's very difficult to govern and difficult to lead and sort of find agreement within the caucus. And that suggests there's some potential movement or groundwork for breaking down of of the current system in the future.
0: As a millennial, I've noticed that my generation is a little bit less affiliated with a political party. Do you notice that that is going to change the discourse of our democracy?
1: Yeah, it's certainly been a trend over the last several years that people haven't been sort of calling themselves Democrat or Republican. They've been sort of identifying more ideologically, although I would say a lot of people who call themselves independent tend to have still have pretty strong <laughs> political leanings. And so in some sense, it's a, it's a labeling question and sort mm-hmm. of an identity question more than one that necessarily affects their uh, voting behavior.
0: Gotcha. OK. And, and in tandem with that question, I noticed that my generation is looking at the government not in terms of draining the swamp, but in terms of taking the initiative to Derail some of the old arguments of our current democracy and interject some of the issues that we are passionate about. And that's not necessarily draining the swamp, but that's simply helping our participatory democracy move forward.
1: Yeah, I, I think you've put that well. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that this election cycle, we're seeing incredibly high interest in first time candidates running for office. We're seeing tremendously large numbers of millennials women veterans all folks who've never you know yeah. had a role in politics before getting interested in public service for the first time and running these campaigns for the first time and you know part that's a response to lots of different right. factors you know may partly be a response to to thinking that you know members of congress and the presidential candidates are sort of older and out of touch with you know younger mm-hmm. needs but you know we also see you know this happened you know a few weeks ago during the um Congressional hearings with, you know, the Facebook executives and others where the members of Congress, you know, aren't up on young mm-hmm. technology. They're just not equipped to answer these sorts of questions in the way that sort of younger folks for whom the technology is sort of more familiar might be able to or willing to approach these questions. And
0: this can't be the first time that a generation has felt inclined to do this. Can you give us some examples of say, the baby boomers wanting to kind of push into the government?
1: Yeah, we. I mean, we saw, you know, saw this in the, in the 90s, certainly, with, you know, the sort of strong co- generational contrast mm-hmm. between, you know, H.W. Bush running for re-election oh, right. versus the sort of young Bill Clinton running as the sort of, you know, first of the baby boomer generation running for president. But we've seen, you know, tensions about this before. The 70s and Congress had all of these older senate democrats from the south who holding on to power in these committee chairmanships and sort of blocking a lot of civil rights legislation and one of the things that you had is essentially had this wave of the watergate babies the sort of response mm-hmm. to these sorts of scandals come in these sort of young upstart democrats and upending seniority rules and doing all sorts of things to sort of try yes. to reclaim power within their own caucus to sort of change what congress was doing and yeah. so we may be right for that scenario again in the next few years. Yeah, that
0: sounds like what Barry and I were able to talk about last time on the podcast, that these upcoming elections are are special, and it sounds like they might parallel what happened back in that era.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to put it.
0: So this is our last question, and it's a question that we've decided to ask all of our scholarly guests on the podcast, and that's, of course, regarding Trump. He's happily said that his tactics are deliberately disruptive of political institutions and practices, how has his presidency disrupted traditional research within American politics?
1: Well, it's certainly been making a lot of people rethink uh, their theories and, and research. People have been rethinking, you know, research about you know how people get presidential nominations, everything from that to sort of you know how uh, what what are sort of the actual norms that are in place and what are the sort of boundaries surrounding those norms. Uh, In my own work, I've been uh, working with a co-author on a, a book project that we started a couple of years ago looking at sort of scandal and party reputations and sort of returning to sort of an older stream of literature that thought about party reputations on two dimensions. We often think about party reputations in terms of liberal conservatism, right, and that's a sort of traditional divide that we think about. Mm-hmm. But there's an older stream of literature that thinks about a, a sort of second dimension. We think about a liberal conservative dimension, but we also think about a sort of a competence direction, a sort of competence to scandal yeah. direction, a sort of you know good governance type right. question. Things like passing the budget on time, these sorts of you know, just sort of governing well versus avoiding scandals. And that's something that sort of had fallen out of favor in the study of American politics. People haven't, hadn't been focusing mm-hmm. as much on it. And so in this project with my co-author, we're trying to explore sort of when do voters actually care about political scandals, whether it's, it's corruption or sex scandals or whatever it is, when do those things sort of outweigh their typical right. political leanings? And one of the challenges in the current environment is the parties are so polarized, people are so highly partisan that, you know, even if you think your guy might be corrupt or might have some scandal, it's tough to bring yourself ideologically or sort of in terms of partisanship to vote for the other guy, mm-hmm. even though you know he might be a sort of you know, he or she might be a better representative. And so trying to sort of understand the balance between these things and the biases that inhibits people from actually being able to sort of monitor the quality of representation that they're receiving.
0: Yeah, definitely. It sounds like the fundamentals of governance, simply the office of the presidency itself, not who's in office, but the office itself has been cast aside. And now because there are so many corruption and scandal issues going on, those fundamentals are need to be reviewed and and strengthened.
1: Exactly. And this is true not just in terms of, you know, presidential study, but, in, you know, in terms of Congress, too. We've seen a lot of congressional scandals over the last several years. And, you know, over the last few years, there was a sort of rewriting of some congressional ethics rules. They created this Office of Congressional Ethics to try to, you know, create a system to actually fairly review these these allegations and not just sweep everything under the rug with these sort of, uh, you know, typical typically ignoring these sorts of allegations so they're, they're trying to do more but then that was almost scrapped in the last mm-hmm. congress where they sort of almost rewrote the rules just before the, the congress started to eliminate it. it was saved at the last minute but sort of again trying to understand sort of what are the the guidelines in place to try to prevent these things and sort of how strong are they if if one if a candidate a, a representative or a party wants to push those boundaries
0: fantastic This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come down and explain some of the work that you've been working on and also how it relates to what's going on all around us. As voters, really appreciate these insights into the political realm that is this age in our democracy.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot.